atheists, agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government, love the government, hug the government. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm political scientist Michael Baranowski. My guest today is Seth Kaplan, a professorial lecturer at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Professor Kaplan has published widely in the area of development, including two books on fragile states, and he served as a consultant to a number of organizations, including the World Bank, the U.S. State Department, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and the OECD. He's the author of multiple books, the most recent of which is Fragile Neighborhoods, Repairing American Society, One Zip Code at a Time, which we'll be talking about today. Seth Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. A great pleasure to be with you, Michael. So I think the obvious place to start here is with, well, your background. I mean, your area of expertise is international studies, and so... It might seem odd for someone with that background to write a book on U.S. domestic policy. So can you talk a little bit about how that happened? Well, I as you described it, I've spent um, I spent about 15 years or so working on fragile states, fragile states that could be Libya, that could be Nigeria, two countries I work on currently could be Somalia. It could be someplace in the Middle East, Latin America. Sri Lanka, and so on and so forth. And so in Washington, people knew me, for the most part, as the fragile states guy. And then 2015, 2016, 2017, I would be having these coffees with people, and without any prompting, one after another, people started asking me, is the United States becoming a fragile state? And so that that question was a bit mysterious to me at first. I mean, The United States is not Sri Lanka, which had a 25-year civil war, or Nigeria, where you have to worry about being kidnapped if you're traveling after dark on some highway. Uh, But I I took it as, eventually I took it as a serious question when it happened for the sixth or seventh time, and I took to exploring uh, the United States. And and my entry point for that um, would be the same entry point I I take when I go to these fragile states. I I think if you look at many countries, one thing that will stand out to you, yes, there's differences in policy. Yes, there's differences in leadership. But ultimately, to me, it's the nature of social dynamics and relationships that matter most. So when I took this journey to understand America, I started with relationships. And that took me to where I am now with this with this book and this research. And I always like to start. Uh, by thinking about key terms and defining those in good, you know, social scientific fashion. So can you explain what you mean by a fragile neighborhood? So imagine all neighborhoods exist on a continuum or a spectrum, if you want to think about it in a more um, academic manner, or even practically, we have neighborhoods. And on one side, you would have very resilient, very robust very dynamic, Uh, lots of institutions, lots of cooperation, lots of trust, lots of people volunteering and engaged in civic activities, supporting each other. And again, most importantly for me, lots of strong institutions. A fragile neighborhood is the opposite. There's very little trust. There's very little cooperation. Institutions from marriage, family, to uh, churches, to uh, nonprofits, um, to whatever, um, even businesses, they tend to be uh, much fewer. They tend to be less robust. Uh, They tend to be uh, not uh, supportive of um, other institutions or players. And what you have is you have people who are more stressful. You have people who are less connected to opportunity. You have people who are more vulnerable, more at risk. When you're in a robust or dynamic neighborhood, there's this support system that surrounds you um, in the society and helps uh, support you when you have a trouble and uplifts you when you want to go someplace. In a fragile neighborhood, you that support system is very weak and sometimes non-existent. 
and therefore you're much more at risk and vulnerable. And in the book, you make this distinction between economic poverty and social poverty, which I think is really important because I feel like a lot of people would just naturally assume that, well, if you have uh, economic poverty, you're going to have social poverty, that kind of economic poverty drives social poverty. But the relationship isn't quite that simple, is it? Uh, no. Um, I mean, first, my own experience, I work on fragile states partly because I've always treasured the nature of the relationships and social interaction I have with people. Um, I find people hospitable, welcoming, supportive, um, kind. And uh, you see that at the local level over and over again, even in the most politically dysfunctional, economically poor places. And I and I it's not always the case, but I often feel those places are very socially rich, even if economically poor. And then you can easily think of some American neighborhoods or American places. They're not really neighborhoods where everyone has a big house. Everyone um, has lots of technology and maybe whatever number of cars. And yet nobody knows each other. No one's willing to. If you knocked on the door and you had a problem, they probably could care less and they tell you to get lost. Um, and so it's. Um, that would be what I would call materially well-off, socially poor place. And so these things are very different. And I think when we look at our country today, I mean, clearly, if you're a poor um, place and you're socially poor and economically poor, you have great hurdles and obstacles to overcome. But there are poor places in America. Think of the Amish. Think of some recent immigrant uh, neighborhoods where there might be a lot of cohesion, a lot of social support, even if people are not doing economically well. And on the other hand, as I mentioned, you have places that are economically fine, but they're very isolating and they're leaving those people who live in those places, even if they can, they have their phones and they can use an app or they have money in the bank, they're more lonely, uh, they're more disconnected, they're probably more alienated and more stressful. And so we need to think about we need to think about these things differently and we need to tackle these challenges differently. So, so essentially we have kind of a fourfold typology, right? You have social, economic, poverty or, or, or wealth kind of in between on that spectrum. And the worst would be obviously economically and socially poor, but you can you can be uh, you can be economically rich and, and in social poverty. And yeah, yes, that, I, I haven't thought of it that way, but that's very nicely said, Michael. I, I, I love a good typology. But, uh, so I can, Yes, I, I wish we could draw one here on the screen, but uh, we'll take it from your words to people's ears. Absolutely. So how big of a problem is this in, in the United States? And, and I guess what sort of indicators do you look to to kind of be able to conceptualize, measure this kind of thing? Well, first of all, I think um, when we say social poverty, every place is different. And I, yes, I will talk about indicators. But we need to understand that it's uh, we can have some generalizations while understanding that different places have different challenges. So there are um, there are whatever number, there's millions of Americans that are poor, for example, but only some of them live in neighborhoods that are both economically poor and have large numbers of, um, I would say, have very bad indicators on things like social poverty. Uh, and that, that would mean not very stable families. That would mean not many associations. That would mean not many businesses, schools that aren't really um, affecting major change. Um, and you so you could go through all these types of institutions, and you can say that in a, and people who are poor but are in a neighborhood that's not socially so bad off versus being poor and being in a very distressed neighborhood with large numbers of economically poor people and social dysfunction, I would, I would say we, we can differentiate between the two. And, and if a person is in one of those distressed neighborhoods, their odds of escaping or the the opportunities that they have in life um, or their bu basic building blocks for success in life, all of those are going to be quite different and quite far behind. And they just grow up very disadvantaged. On the other hand, you can think of 
when we talk about, um, I mean, the, the places that are most dynamic um, are the places where you have both. And if I was looking at a wealthy neighborhood and I was thinking of um, like social indicators to measure social wealth, I think I'd be looking at slightly different indicators because I think the schools might might deliver pretty good results. But I think the question is, how many friends do you have? How many neighbors do you have? Uh, there might be some businesses, but are there any mechanisms for people to meet each other? Are When people participate in some sort of associational life, is it local or is it very distant? Is it very uh, virtual? Um, um, if, if there's if there's some um, emergency, I remember meeting a guy who had to organize his neighborhood because of one of the f- fires in California. And he was in a very, very wealthy neighborhood. And before the fire came, he basically did not know anyone in his neighborhood. So that neighborhood was very socially poor. And partly because of that, they had done very little preparation and very little like discussion among themselves what to do. Um, after the fact, of course, people were very organized and they were much more prepared. But you just get it uh, when, when you identify the relationship between people, the relationship or the strength of local institutions, you begin to get a hold in all of these cases for how socially well off. I'm a big believer in institutions matter. And so we're looking at very local institutions, some of them informal, like interfamily networks interfamily support system. Some of them may never be registered. And the more you're able to identify these and measure these, the better sense you have of how socially well-off a neighborhood is. So what do you think is driving the increase in social poverty in the United States? What are the factors that you think are most important here? I mean, we could go through a whole whole set of (laughs) them. I mean, I think most people would focus on social media and the internet, but I would put that as part of a larger um, a larger set of technological changes that we have allowed to affect our life without thinking of the implications on society. For the most part, we make decisions, I would say personally, as well as a society on economic grounds. And there's a lot of justification because those are easy to measure. And one indicator of well-being is income and GDP. But for the most part, we don't think very hard about implications for society or our own personal relationship health when we um, make choices. So um, what you end up having is um, we haven't considered when we've introduced technology. And I'll just run through a whole set. So you have a picture of the car The car and the fact that we've moved from place-based institutions to very much a car-based society has had a large impact. I mean, we could have offset that by designing the physical landscape, but because we built the physical landscape, I mean, it used to be people would build beautiful neighborhoods. Now I often feel, partly because I have foreign eyes from all my time overseas, is that we've built beautiful highways in America and we have not built beautiful neighborhoods. We have beautiful houses, but we don't have beautiful neighborhoods. So it tends to be that the physical landscape post-World War II, because of the car, because of some of the choices we've made as a society, is that we basically, you live in a, in a place where there's beautiful house, beautiful house, beautiful house, and nothing connects them. So it's the physical landscape driven by the car, but also our choices. It's the fact that our institutions have changed so much. We used to be in a place-based society with lots of local institutions. Now we've evolved to a network society, which is very dynamic. Anyone who belongs to the right school, the right neighborhood, the right company, whatever it is, they have the right set of uh, people in their network. They can thrive But when we're in a network society, the other places, if you're not in the right place or not have the right network, you're you're typically left behind, which explains some of the frustration and anger we see. So I would say something about how technology has affected us. I mean, it's also something that our professional lives are much more competitive. It's uh, partly because we've nationalized so many things. I mean, when government was more decentralized and when the nonprofit and social social institutions or associations we belong to were local, everybody could join 
Everybody could play a leadership role. Everybody felt like they had a stake in society because they had a stake in something they could they could actually make better. When we nationalize everything, companies are national. Shopping is not local. Shopping is far away, but it's part of a national chain and so on and so forth. Politics has become national. What it means is that we many of us feel like there's nothing local we can contribute, participate in. We're more we, besides the fact that we're more lonely, we feel our lives have less value. We're we're tend to be more mistrustful and in the so certainly the nationalization, the change in shopping, uh, the change in work patterns, this whole tendency to outsource. It used to be that we cared for each other. Today we outsource our goods to overseas, and we can see that that's brought us some some negative as well as many positive. Um, um, gains and losses, but we also outsource the care for our kids. We've outsourced the care for our, our grandparents. And when we do all that, we, we're thinning out our relationships and we're basically saying everything can be solved through an app or through money. And I think it makes our lives more efficient, but it basically means that, that we have we, we don't depend on anyone around us. And the contrast to what what it means when you live in a thriving neighborhood, and I could talk about my neighborhood if you wanted to, which is thriving, full of relationships, is you're just you're just you're you're alone. And if you can figure it out alone, great. But a lot of us do better off when we have a strong support system. That sounds a lot like in the book you you make this you talk about what you call sideways approaches to dealing with to helping fragile neighborhoods as opposed to that kind of top-down method that I think is far more prevalent in American public policy. And that, that's sort of what you're getting at here, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, I think, I mean, people think of change mostly in two ways. They think some local hero steps up and miraculously changes something, which is very bottom-up. And then they think top-down that we're if we have a problem, we're going to look for a policy solution. One of the things I find um, often very odd. I live in Washington. I know a lot of people at think tanks. I know a lot of people who worry about the future of the country and they're thinking, what can we do about it? And they almost only think on the role of government and the role of policy. And I'm thinking most people, I mean, policies matter, policies have impact, but we don't think very much about something hard, something different than that. We don't think about society, society action. So when I say horizontal, I really mean two things. I mean, within a place, the relationships within a place, that's a horizontal way of thinking. How strong are the relationships and the institutions bringing people together within a place and then between places? So there's a within and there's, I would call it local and interlocal, if you want to get a little more uh, technical, but local is within your neighborhood and then between neighborhoods. You can think of this as bonding and bridging social capital. And then when we think of change uh, and, and in a more national or a more regional manner, it's across all these neighborhoods. The country is full of hundreds of thousands of neighborhoods and people, wherever they live, a lot of what they experience in America depends upon where they live. Because the, just as an example, the average lifespan in America there's a gap of 40 years, depending upon which neighborhood you live in. You could be it could be in the mid 90s or it could be in the mid 50s. That's somewhat extreme. Mostly it's 20, 25 year gap. But that's only that's determined based upon where you live. So how we experience life, how we feel life is very place based. And if we want to think of change, I don't think there's a policy that can affect. There's some policies that can affect, but a lot of it is action horizontally within a place and across all these places. In the book, you spent a lot of time looking at kind of profiling, I believe it's five really kind of different approaches to, to working in fragile neighborhoods to in, improve them. And, and many of them are strictly kind of in the neighborhood, but there's one, the uh, faith-based one I'm thinking about with marriages that's kind of- Communio, yeah, communio. Exactly. So uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about, well, I guess in a way, you know, normally I would say, well, tell me what these programs have in common. But it occurs to me that part of your argument is that you would, there wouldn't necessarily be sort of a common template that you'd have to sort of design it based on the particular community, right? 
Well, for, first, let me say that um, I did very systematically choose these five. I basically did research on what were the factors of success in a neighborhood. And there's 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 a decent body of research that could tell you how 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 strong or how robust versus how fragile a neighborhood is. There's scholars like Rod Chetty, um, a guy named um, wrote a great book on Chicago. I'm uh, Samson. Uh, Professor Sampson from Harvard. Uh, so there are that's Robert Sampson, I believe. And there's also practical organizations that work in lots of neighborhoods like purpose-built communities, which I also profile. And so you can go through this data, you can find out what are the determinants of a successful place. And then what I look for, I look for institutions that matter because that's basically what you find out. What about institutions? That's because I think that's real. I'm, I'm thinking about relationship institutions. And I have one example more about the built environment. And so I look at five entry points. And um, of course, every neighborhood is different and whatever these do would have to be adapted. But I thought those would give us five entry points, five viewpoints about how do you the key question is, how do you improve relationships at scale in a particular neighborhood? That is the key question. How do you improve relationships at scale within a particular neighborhood with these five entry points chosen based upon the data? And then I looked at all of them. So I can just give an example of Communio. Communio is an, uh, uh, run by an incredible man. Um, everybody calls him JP, JP DeGance, um, a man who had. Uh, a personal story in which he has um, he has a lot of kids, and then one day his uh, sister marriage broke up, and uh, got a phone call and said, "I need help. Who's going to take care of my kids?" She, she basically had to go and spend time in therapy. She was not doing very well, and so immediately her his wife and him more his wife because his wife was braver. Let's put it that way. Says we're going to take your four kids, and somehow he was able to support those kids. And he saw the importance of his church community to supporting him and his wife and their family. And so what he what he did was he was doing policy work like a lot of people in Washington. And he said, this is not as impactful as me doing being a social entrepreneur. And all five of my my profiles are of social entrepreneurs and me starting some organization that can address this problem of problem of marriage, basically. So I look at marriage, I look at community, I look at interfamily dynamics, I look at school, and then I look at the more built, uh, the more built environment. So he he's one of the five. And he started this incredible organization that marries, uh, basically, I mean, again, it, again, it's, um, it's an outgrowth of years and years of his own research and testing different things. But his organization marriages the modern and the traditional, which I think is very unusual and something we should all learn from uses modern marketing techniques, um, um, analyzing data and uh, finding the best ways to reach people, identify the best need or the most important need in a specific neighborhood. And he partners with churches and these churches, these churches say they care about relationships, say they care about um, improving marriages and families. But actually, if you look at their daily work, they don't do very much of it or they do it in a very limited fashion. So he's basically stepping up and say, I can give you data. I can give you tools. I can give you a, even a data dashboard and I can help you make this a, a key mission of your church. And um, and he's getting lots of churches very enthusiastic about this. It's a way for them to 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 be very engaged locally in their communities and to make a difference in a way that they that they they that their creed says they should be doing but previously they didn't know maybe how or they weren't allocating resources and he's providing all this information and it's it's actually a great case study of any for any social entrepreneur i mean there's so much to learn from him because he's always also adapting incrementally improving and so, yeah, so I, I have five of those. Thank you. Yeah, I, they, they were all interesting to me. That one, I don't know, because I'm something of a data geek, that, that one sort of caught my attention more. than. Yeah, that. you're a data geek. <laughs> I see that. So th there was one, there was a passage in the book that really struck me. I, I want to read it. Uh, you write, a real community requires commitment to a certain social order. 
a certain set of institutions and norms, and usually to a certain place. And that commitment, by definition, must constrain some of our individual choices. And when I read that, it seemed to me that you were saying, at least in part, that uh, in addition to these communities being place-based and, and local and that, but there's an element that they almost sort of require that people can't just easily opt out of them. And, and I wondered if I'm interpreting that correctly. And if I am, that, that suggests there's kind of a tension, right, between sort of American belief in individual liberty and choice and what these organizations, successful organizations need. Is that, can you talk about that a little bit? Yes, that's a great question, Michael. So first of all, I, I'm not suggesting anything about uh, constraining someone's ability to move or escape if they're not happy where they are. That's not what we're talking about. But I would say you're correct. There is a tension. Um, and I talk a little bit about that also in the last chapter when I discuss um, how do we define success? How do we define the American dream? I think We've mostly in recent decades defined the American dream as unconstrained freedom and as if we have no sense of duty or no obligation to other people. In many cases, that could be, um, I mean, to our own children at times. And that's that would be the that would be the that would be the part of our society, I feel, who has um, suffered the most by this belief that we have no set. We have no sense of duty to other people. Um, but in this case, we're talking about neighborhoods, we're talking about communities. So when I mean the tension there, it, it means that if you're part of a neighborhood uh, and you're part of a, this mutually enhancing support system. So I live in a neighborhood and my neighborhood is pretty close knit. People can move in. People can move out anytime. But because we're part of this very thick set of institutions and mutually support system, what I mean there is what happens in my life. If someone knocks on my door or someone texts me and say, I need some help, it, it means that I should be prepared to help them if I can. And I'm going to uh, let me give a, an even more specific example. I was actually in Denver in October speaking for Communio, the organization we talked before. And I just spoke to um, a group of people. And I was sitting around listening to the rest of the meeting before I had to jump on my plane and fly back. And maybe about one thirty or two o'clock or something, one of my I have a we have a lot of WhatsApp um, group chats in my neighborhood, but uh, more than I can imagine. And so one of them becomes active. It's not so active usually, and says there's a kid missing, and that kid is missing, and he's been missing for 24 hours. And that doesn't seem like a young kid. It seems like the kid was about 21, two years old. But this goes out in the nighttime, doesn't come back. And here they were at afternoon and they were worried about a second night without seeing that kid. And we need help to find this kid. Immediately, the chat group sprung up, all the people going back and forth. And I'm just watching. And then they say, we're going to have a spinoff. We're going to start a new chat just to find this kid. And I'm there in Denver. I wasn't going to help them, but I, I clicked on the link and I joined that new chat group. I was going to see what was going to happen. And you had 20 or so people join that new chat group from this other group must have had a couple of hundred. And they said, we're going to do a search starting at four o'clock. And everyone volunteered on that group. And they all chose different directions. My area is surrounded by woods on three sides. And so they thought he would be on one of the paths in the woods where he tends to go hang out, whatever. And so they all took off in different directions. And and at four o'clock, by 5.30, this is about four hours after the initial, the initial chat, they had found that kid. And then there were people were asking, I need to get back home. Um, can somebody pick me up? I've walked all the way down here. I've walked all the way down there. And so this whole thing took about four hours. And when you're in a community, um, it's not about restricting your ability to come or go. It's about a sense that you have some obligation to help other people when you can. Again, out of the 200 people or something like that on that chat, only 20 volunteered. But the fact is there were 20 who are willing to volunteer to help a neighbor on a moment's notice. And that's the type of thing I see every day over and over and over again. Somebody has, someone needs something. Somebody, um, my wife went away to New York to take care of her mother. I needed help with the carpool. 
I had four different volunteers, two mornings, two afternoons, substitute for us to help my kids get back and forth to school. And it's just something you're always able to ask, and you have to be always ready to give. And you can't, it's not like you're always going to be able to do that, but it's a, just as a mindset that you're part of a larger whole, and you can't only think of yourself. And it, it sort of molds you to have a different character, a different outlook, and it also makes you like willingly trustful of other people. We're not alone. We're part of this greater whole. So it affects you in a hundred different ways. And that's what I mean. It means you always can leave if you want to leave. But if you're here, you just can't be a taker. You have to be a giver. And the more you give, the more people are going to appreciate your presence. And it just becomes a joyful experience to be part of that. It it occurs to me that that in the past, certainly people, you, you could do this partly through pre-existing institutions, churches uh, pop up. I think that that's the one that pops into my head most immediately. But but also, as, as you talked about before, just the physical construction of neighborhoods make that Physical easier. construction, yes. Uh, churches, I would say schools. Okay. Schools are the best secular incubator of relationships. So I guess my my big question is how do we uh, how does this happen how do you get the buy in from the people to create these networks because it seems pretty clear you can't just drop in some template from the federal level and throw money at the problem that's not going to create these sort of robust institutions so h- how does how do you go from where we're at in so many neighborhoods that aren't like your neighborhood to create something that that is you know uh, robust and resilient and uh, what have you found in your research on this? Well, I, I think we can think about this. I could give you examples of um, successful neighborhoods, but let me talk about what I think are the, let's say, the policy implications if you're thinking about it from a government side. I mean, I think the first point is we need to think of our physical landscape um, and I would say also institutional landscape. That's two different levels as if neighborhoods matter. And that means that the more our, 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 the, the physical landscape is that everybody lives in a neighborhood. What is a neighborhood? A neighborhood has a center. A neighborhood has an identity. A neighborhood has boundaries. A neighborhood has places where people regularly interact. A neighborhood has, um, again, lots of local institutions. That's where the physical and institutional part needs to come together. If you just live in a place there's no place to meet, there's no center, there's no identity, you have no sense of belonging to anything. So we have to start by thinking of the physical as that neighborhoods matter and and make a greater effort to ensure that the landscape reflected that belonging to a place is important. Then we think of institutions. I mean, so many of our institutions are if we're only atomized individuals. So schools, I, I believe we would be better off if every neighborhood had a, at least a primary, if not more schools. I mean, if people walk to school, kids walk to school, and there was strong interfamily relationships around a school, I mean, that that itself is an incubator of relationships. I mean, I do believe that competition is good for schools, But you could have multiple neighborhood schools or something like that. But I do think we we, we often don't think of the role of schools in incubating strong local relationships. I think also we should think of, I mean, the nonprofit world, the churches. I mean, so many of these organizations exist as if you can just drive everywhere. And um, so, I mean, churches, I encourage Christian leaders and church leaders or other religious leaders when I meet them is why not go back to being more place-based and why not have a thicker understanding of your relationship with your members? I would say that is all very important. Um, If I was government, besides having the physical landscape uh, restructured the way I did, I mean, all parts of the government, wouldn't it be nice if government wasn't about housing and health services and education and so on and so forth? What would happen if government was about the success of neighborhoods? And that might mean that government, you you would have to keep these functional departments because they have special knowledge or specialized skills. But what would happen if um, 
you had neighborhood-based teams that, um, that were held accountable for the success of neighborhoods. And these functional units reported to and were held accountable to the teams. And then what would happen if you had scorecards or indicators of neighborhood success so that therefore government and nonprofits and other people who were trying to make individual lives better, they were also trying to make neighborhoods better. We tend to measure everything on the individual level. If everything that we were doing in our society from how government functioned to how nonprofits and philanthropy thought about things, how churches thought about their membership, if much more of this was centered on the neighborhood and it was designed for uh, building stronger relationships and neighborhood thriving or flourishing, um, I think all of these organizations would work differently and it would be much more about uplifting places as opposed to what happens now. They tend to, as I said in a recent article, they save trees and they lose forests. They take a few individuals and they better their lives. And then on the whole, many, many places, those forests are just getting worse and worse. And we need to think about society differently. And many of our important organizations, government and non-government, need to think differently about what their role is. You know, it seems to me that one of the frustrations is that we tend to want quick fixes, things that happen and, and uh, very soon and can show us immediate results or at least results before the next election cycle. And yet the sort of things you're talking about, it seems to me, are really multi-generational in terms of changing the built environment doesn't happen that quickly. And if you want to build these kind of institutions, you can't just do that in a year or five years or probably even 10 years. And so uh, what do you think about how to navigate that tension between, I guess, what I'll call political time when we want these results right away and uh, the reality of the fact that this is something that is a project that's going to take quite a lot of time and, and extensive commitment from a lot of people? I, I think that's a very fair question. I mean, I, I think what we need to do is look at the agents of change in our society that have a strong incentive to carry this forward. I mean, um, uh, metropolitan areas or municipal governments, for example, uh, the city of Atlanta has a mayor who cares a lot about neighborhoods and has several people working for him that I know who are directly involved with trying to rethink government around neighborhoods. Now, I couldn't speak to you about the details of the work because I'm not following it day to day, but I hear them talking about trying to create a mechanism where all these different siloed government departments began to flow together around neighborhoods, trying to integrate the, the money such that it, was, it could be organized and invested more strategically to ensure success at the neighborhood level. So there are there are political leaders. And I think at municipal level, this is certainly a very good entry point. I think of our healthcare system, and um, I don't think anyone has such a clear incentive, but if you look at us as a country, I mean, our healthcare spending goes up and up, and it's all about addressing problems after they occur, as opposed to preventing problems. So, I mean, again, it's hard to imagine it, but um, I could certainly think of a state, and I've had conversations with the state of Tennessee, for example, and, and it could be a different state. But what would happen if a state said that we have a better way to spend all this money on health and human services? What would happen if we could spend it in a way that would be, be more preventive in terms of strengthening the success of different parts of our state? So I, I think there are there are there are political leaders, um, and there are possible agents of change who recognize these problems. The question is whether they can be ambitious enough and get enough done in the relatively short electoral cycle, which is for most part four years. I mean, I think in the, in the, for other people in our society, I mean, anybody who runs an organization that's not governmental, if you're a philanthropy, if you're a nonprofit, I think that is something that could, in a relatively short period of time, there is a relatively small number of major philanthropists 
who care about neighborhoods in place. I mean, there are some community foundations, but in terms of the national foundations, there's significantly less than 10. There's maybe about half a dozen who see this kind of work as important. And so if a listener was on this, was listening to this and said, I'm involved with the philanthropy um, or I'm involved in some nonprofit, what would happen if we rethought our mission and we made it much more neighborhood centric? I think those are actors that could make a significant difference. If you're a, a civic leader or a social leader or a neighborhood leader, I certainly think you could make a difference. Think about setting up a neighborhood quarterback, if that's what's needed in your neighborhood. Think about setting up some sort of neighborhood network. I mean, I, I don't um, profile it, but there's some examples in Edmonton and in Shreveport and a few other places. Where, and I could certainly explain that if anybody wanted to. People just set up uh, a set of block connectors and neighborhood connectors to bring people together. Um, I mean, again, uh, you could you could bring local leaders together and try to create some platform of bringing people together. You could bring several neighbors together and say, what do we need to do to activate and bring people together, improve our neighborhood? How could we lobby or advocate for more change in our government? So we could that's something like what Strong Towns does. Strong Towns is not a neighborhood focused movement, but Strong Towns is very much about bottom up change, bringing people together. They're more like new urbanism, which I think a part of what I what I'm recommending here is something like new urbanism. Let's work on the physical landscape. But I think it's much more than that. But these are all models of change where local people can take a leadership role. Um, but I think state leaders, I think uh, uh, government, uh, city, urban leaders, there's many ways people can approach our society and approach our challenges in a more preventive and a more relationship-oriented way. Remember, our health as a society and our health as individuals is so dependent upon relationships, and these very much depend upon place. The more we think of things in those ways, I think the more successful we will be locally and nationally over time. It seems to me that one potential political obstacle to reorienting our thinking this way is that is the tendency of central governments, whether we're talking about state or the federal government, to not want to devolve authority, not want to let go of that control. And I'm wondering if that if that tracks with your experience in researching that. And if so, if you have any thoughts on how we can sort of try to meet that and deal with that obstacle. Well, I think it's true. Again, think of the incentives. Whoever's in power says that I want to centralize. And whoever's in opposition always says we want to decentralize. So we often talk about states' rights. It seems that the party out of office often <laughs> cures most of states' rights. And the party in office, I mean, you can just choose whichever party is in opposition and they're fighting for states' rights. So I find that all very hypocritical, to be honest. I and mean, we even see it at the state level. We talk about states' rights. And then when we get to the state level, they don't want to decentralize down. And so there's tension and all that. It is true in our federal system that the states have uh, greater have a special authority because we're a, a federalist country and sub state uh, structures do not have the same um, standing in our constitution. So there is there is some of that there. But I, I would say in general, I think um, the over the, the over nationalization, I want to use that term, not over centralization, over nationalization of so much of our lives and about government spending in particular, explain some of the problems. I'm a believer that uh, you need to have neighborhood teams that are held accountable for the success of neighborhoods. You have that at some level at the town level. Doesn't always work, of course, but in big metropolises, um, much better if not only was government structured around these teams, but a significant amount of resources was devolved to these teams and they were. They were they were um, held accountable on place based results. I think this is a very different way of thinking than we have we have developed in our country. Everything is very individualistic and everything tends to be somewhat distant. I mean, even in a big city, government seems so distant from what is happening locally. So the more we're able to empower locals, give them a chance to plan, give them a chance to organize 
give them a chance to decide. And there's a few governments. Seattle worked on some of this for some period of time. I'm not quite sure whether they're following up with it. Uh, but you can find you can find you can find examples of this in pockets. But for the most part, I just think government seems so distant for people. And that's one of the reasons why people feel very mistrustful of government. I think the more government was felt to be something I could influence, something I could cooperate with, collaborate with, something I could uh, partner with. And that part of that is money and part of that is power getting closer to where people live. Yeah. I think that also maybe helps to address issues with uh, tr- lack of trust in government and legitimacy and, and, and those things, which are pretty clear problems in American society today as well. Yes, yes. I, I mean, I think we need to think about how does the average American experience life? It once was that there was a lot of associations. I mean, this is the Tocqueville, but it goes all the way through Putnam. Putnam Robert Putnam says it peaks in 1964. So roughly, we're talking about changes over two two generations, and um, and he's basically there was lots of local associations, and I believe the data says that three to four percent of American adults played a leadership role in some local association at, at any one time, and those people would change year to year. So it, again, it might have been. One person played multiple jobs. It might have been different people in different years. But the fact is, one out of every 30 or so Americans had a leadership role, an executive role in a local association. And that's an example that many more people participated. Many more people felt a sense of fraternity. Many more people felt a sense of ownership or agency in their community, in the society as a whole. And today, there's like a void. Most people belong to nothing. Most people, except for their phone, what connection do they have with each other or their, their family? And so they, they feel, I would say, much more that things are being done to them than they're able to do something. So again, there's no agency, there's no ownership, and that explains the mistrust. So the more we're able to make uh, our country one of local institutions and local authority, public authority, government, that we can influence and participate in, I think that is the only way to return a sense of what we've lost. We can't go back. We have to find new ways forward. But this idea that we have a stake in our in our local institutions and our government, that we have to find better ways to achieve that. In one way, I, I think about this in sort of the broadest terms, and it's easy to feel disheartened. It's such such a big task to sort of change or reorient our thinking. But but it does seem to me that there are reasons to be optimistic. At least I hope they are. And and I want to close on an optimistic note by asking you, when you look at this, this situation of fragile neighborhoods in the United States, what gives you the most cause for optimism? I can give you a few points. One is there's certainly a group of people that I personally have met in this journey. Let's call this writing a book is like a journey. And now we're um, we're building on the book and trying to create a larger, a larger movement around these ideas. It's a journey. And I've met a lot of people. And so I would say hope, I would say one one pillar of hope is that there are a group of people who agree with this premise and are working very hard to uh, make it much more a uh, foundation about how we think about society. I mean, uh, I, I can give some of the examples are in the book. Some of them are not. Um, but the idea that neighborhoods matter and that every American deserves to live in a flourishing neighborhood and that our society will only be successful when it's a society based on lots and lots of, of flourishing neighborhoods where every American is in one, Flourishing society built on flourishing neighborhoods. I think that premise is accepted by a significant number of people. It's not critical mass. It has a long way to grow. It has a long way to amplify its voice. But there is that. That's one thing. I would say a second, a second strand of hope, I'll give you three. A second strand of hope is that there are some public officials, I mentioned Atlanta in particular, uh, who are understanding that um, that this can be a great vehicle for change to achieve other outcomes, problems like inequality, 
uh, problems like um, racial inequality in particular are this is this is one of the best avenues to address change. If you think about some of the some of the neighborhood based spatial inequalities are the product of redlining. The only way to address them is to ensure that those um, purposely underinvested in neighborhoods um, thrive in whatever form that may take thrive and we're well connected to other dynamic parts of the city. So I would say at the city level, you could see that this would be this could be. But there are examples. What we really need is we really need a city and a state that would take this up as a model. And so I think we, we can see some of that. Will it go far enough? Um, will it be will it will it uh, have the right time horizon? To, uh, we have to see. So that's the second trend. I, th- I would say the last trend is that from my experience, neighborhoods matter can be very bipartisan. The left and right uses different languages. Uh, I mean, literally, when I speak to people on the left and people on the right, I have to be very careful what I'm saying, because it's almost like I need to say different things to different people at times. But they both get the point that place neighborhood matters. Um, I think that for the left, it's it's about inequality is very important to it. And I think for the right, this idea that you have places with um, with great social isolation and you have places with um, some sort of social poverty, the idea of social poverty or some sort of social dysfunction um, and a decay of institutions matters very much to the right. And the left is very much about inequality. So these are different conversations. But the idea that neighborhoods matter and that we as a society could do much more to help neighborhoods thrive, rich and poor, I think the left and right both can get behind this if it has the right spokespeople and it's um, promoted in the right language that can be seen as this is a nonpartisan. This is, in my language, it'd be pre-political, pre-political, but maybe we have to think of it as something that can be bipartisan, but it's really an issue that's that, that, that both can agree on if it's presented in the right way. So those would be my three strands of hope. Well, that's, uh, I, I like having multiple strands of hope. And, and on that optimistic note, we'll close. Again, the book is Fragile Neighborhoods. It's a fantastic book. I encourage people to check it out. And Seth Kaplan, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's a great pleasure, Michael. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling knowing that you're supporting a good cause. I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our discord group if you want. And there's always some interesting conversations going on there at the $10 a month level or more. You get to actually be part of the episodes J and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff is what I am saying. And I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.